I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Mark Bolgutch joins me again. He's got a new book out, Inspiring Canadians, 40 Brilliant Canadians and Their Visions for the Nation. In the book, Mark uh, has talked to, uh, a, to a variety of accomplished and notable Canadians who offer uh, their thoughts on what ails the country with a focus on what Canada is doing right and what needs to change to make the country a better one. This all comes from a place of reverence for Canada. Mark writes in the introduction about how grateful he is to have been born in a country that accepted his parents as immigrants. Whether it's climate change or gun control, elder care, social justice and race, education, indigenous rights, uh, a better country is possible and it's uh, engaging and, yes, inspiring to read what these folks say. Among the people that Mr. Bogut speaks to are Perry Belgard, Adam Fenich, uh, Dr. Najima Ahmed, Laura Tamblin-Watt, Santa Ono, Paulette Sr., Michael Prince, Kwame McKenzie, Duff Conacher, Christopher Waddell, Donald McPherson, and many others. Mark Bulgich uh, worked uh, for CBC News for over 35 years. He is the recipient of countless industry awards, like 14 Gemini Awards. His previous books include That's Why I'm a Journalist, That's Why I'm a Doctor, and Extraordinary Canadians, which he co-authored with uh, Peter Mansbridge, who also provides the foreword for this book, which is published by Douglas and McIntyre. We taped this interview one week ago. Please uh, welcome back to the Plants Online program, Mark Bulgich. Mr. Bulgich, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Pretty good yourself. I'm great. So I'm somebody who grew up in Vancouver. Um, you know, I listened to Rafe Mayer, and I always railed against the, the so-called Laurentian consensus. Um, but, but I enjoyed um, reading what these 40 people had to say, because what you managed to do in the book is, is gather a great many points of view from across the country. It's a very diverse list of people. Um, and um, I, I don't know, maybe as I've gotten older, I've, I've, I've sort of appreciated um, the different ways people view the country. What was the goal, Mark, in assembling this distinguished group of people? Well, I, I guess it started as, um, you know, the working title of the book originally, in my head anyway, was How to Make Canada Even Better. Mm. So uh, I didn't start from a premise that Canada is a terrible place. Um, I mean, I believe in this country. I'm terribly grateful to have been born here, to have been raised here. Uh, I think we are all lucky beyond words mm -hmm. that we live here. Um, but... You know, it's not a perfect country, and I wanted to acknowledge that. And it's certainly not a perfect country for some people more than it's imperfect for others. I mean, right. For me, it's pretty close to perfect. Uh, and the, really the only imperfections are because I see other people who aren't getting the opportunities that Canada is giving me. Uh, and so it starts from the premise that we already have a pretty terrific country, but that it could be better. And so I just looked around and thought, okay, so where are the, the points that we could do better? And I just went out and, and, and found people to talk to those points. But not just, you know, the problems. I mean, I, I leavened it, I think, um, by including certain topics that aren't problematic, mm. but I think that make us special in, in the world. So I, I, I got, for example, a poet to talk to me about why poetry is important. So poetry obviously isn't a problem in Canada, sure, yeah. but but it's something I think that you know if you think about it for a bit. I mean, why do we care about poetry at all? Why should we have poetry in our country? And the same with comedy. I went to a comedian and talked to him. So I mean, that's the kind of book it is. I mean, I, as you know, if you 
know anything about me. I, I'm a journalist, and I worked at CBC for almost 40 years. And, and part of my time there was lining up the national, which meant that I was responsible, at least in part, for choosing what stories to run. And I always wanted to reflect the real world and, and not just do the doom and gloom, which is so prevalent in news, and not for the right, and for all the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to make it clear that you know, the world wasn't just doom and gloom, and there is room for poetry and art and technology and science. So that's what's in the book, too, and to talk to Canadians about why they're important. I mean, why is it important that we care about people in other countries? Uh, you know, why is, why is human rights important to us? Why is our foreign policy important? So that's where the book came from. Yeah, I found it amusing that the uh, essay by the comedian was a, by a guy uh, whose last name is Mary, which yeah. I thought was appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the, what I found amusing in that piece was that um, um, Vancouverites are tough to, uh, or yeah. a tough lot to make laugh, and it, which, which um, I wondered about. And as I thought about it, no, he's probably right. Well, he's probably. I mean, I I couldn't speak to whether you're, no. a, you know, whether he's right or not. I I know that he has experience. I mean, he's mm-hmm. done so much of this uh, that when I talk to him about you know the differences and how his comedy, at least, is received across the country, that's what he tells me. He told me that Vancouver's a tough sell. You know, people are just different there. Uh, you know, so I can't tell you if he's right or wrong. I can tell you what he told me. And you uh, talked to the, the the guy who's the commissioner of the CFL. Um, I've, I've never been a, a football fan, let alone a, a CFL watcher or, or a follower. But, but what I found interesting in what he said was, was um, just how important it's been to the country, um, how, how that's declined, but how it could be again. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, again, that's another one of those people who I talk to, not because it's deeply troubling or, or problematic mm-hmm. part of Canada, um, but why do we even have a Canadian football league? Why is that important to anybody? Uh, you know, if it were to disappear tomorrow, why would it matter? And, you know, that's one of the questions I put to him. And he had a good answer, I thought, that, that you know, some of us who live in the big cities, I live in Toronto, you live in uh, Vancouver, right. I'm from Montreal. Uh, so that's, in fact, the three places where the CFL is in the most trouble. Uh, but he says that some of us who live in the big cities are blinded to the fact that the CFL is really integral to our smaller cities mm. in, in Saskatchewan and Alberta. Uh, and, and he talked about how the players in the CFL are not the megastars of the NFL, the American version of football, or our hockey stars or any of them, how you know, they're the people who play for Canadian football league teams uh, really do integrate into the community a lot better than the superstar athletes. They, they make what I would think of as reasonable money, not superstar money. Uh, and they, they act as community members. They go to hospitals, they, and, they, and as he put it, you know, they're not always looking at their watches to see when they can get out. Yeah. Uh, they actually care about where they play. And, you know, as, you know I'm of a certain age as well, um, where I remember when sports was very important to me as a kid. Mm. And as I grew older, I got a little disillusioned with sports because I thought, in many ways, fans care more about the game than the players. <laughs> they get their money no matter what, but fans live and die. You know, they feel terrible if their team loses. They feel elated if their team wins. Where 
players, I think, more and more, they just play for the money. Um, you know, they, they, they play one year for one team, next year they play just as hard for another team, whereas fans are invested in the team. And I think what he told me, Randy Ambrosi, is that the players are more invested. I mean, they obviously are traded and move sure. around as yeah. well. But while they're in the city, they really are invested in the city. And it struck me that here's kind of the sports you can support without feeling, like, cynical about it. Yeah, yeah. It made, made me want to, what he had to say made me want to root for the CFL. And, yeah. um, you know, I wanted to see it succeed. Well, I mean, again, I, I'm not here to tell you what to, what to like, what yeah. not to like. But, yeah, I thought he made a good case, a strong case for a, a CFL that actually matters to this country, that holds certain communities together and is a rallying point. You know, Regina doesn't have a National Hockey League team, right? Uh, yeah. But it has a CFL team, and, and it really is important to them. They own the team, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. It's not owned by a, a rich multimillionaire. It's, it's owned by the community. And it means a lot to them. And for that to, if that were to fold, it would be a, a severe blow to them. The future of seniors is something that's talked about um, by, by a couple of people in the book. Uh, Helen Kennedy worries about gay seniors. Uh, Laura Watts, she offers, you know, sort of the antidote to, to ageism, I thought. You know, what we see, say, in the workplace or in popular culture. You know, a better view, uh, a better way, I should say, to view seniors. Um, you know, I, I turned 40 shortly, and I, I, I don't know why I'm thinking about this at this time, but... but um, these are things, you know, the, the, how do we care about people in, in society, and especially older people? Um, is that something that you've been thinking about as well? Well, I mean, I'm uh, twice your age, so, um, <laughs> like, I'm almost 70. I'll be 70 near the end of this year. Mm. And so I am, in theory, a senior. So, you know, as, as Laura Watts puts it, you know, what is a senior? It kind of depends what you're after. You know, if you're after a discount at the drugstore, you might be 55. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're after your old age pension check, you have to be 65. It's, you know, it just depends what you're after. Um, but, you know, by most standards, I'm a senior. I'm certainly, as we say in golf, I'm on the back nine. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, but in her view, so I think what, what she told me and what I took from it was that we've been told that the aging society is a real problem for Canada. Yeah. That that you know this this gray tsunami or this silver tsunami is going to going to make our tax base smaller. Uh, you know everyone's going to be on a pension, and and the people who are working to contribute their tax money to support the pension plans, um, there aren't going to be enough of them, and society is somehow going to collapse, and our our medical system is going to collapse, taking care of us near the end. Uh, and she says it's just wrong. Um, yeah. We're just looking at it the wrong way, that more and more people are staying first in the workforce, and we should encourage that, not not at 65 somehow think a, a switch has been flipped and, they have, and people who are 65 have to leave the workforce. Why would we do that? They can, A, contribute monetarily. They keep working. The tax base is larger, not smaller. Uh, and they have knowledge and institutional memory mm, right. that, that is so uh, missing in so many places now that turn over employees faster and faster. Uh, so older people are, are necessary in society. And, and what she says is it's a pity that you know, so many seniors, though, um, are, uh, in fact, in financial trouble because we haven't taken care of them in their working life. They don't have a workplace pension, perhaps, um, 
women you know, of a certain age weren't in the workforce for many, many years, and so they don't have a Canada pension to, to, to rely on or a workplace pension. And if their husband, uh, you know, if they're suddenly widowed, uh, you know, they have one source of income. And that's their, the, the Canada pension, and it's not enough. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we have to kind of look at that. I mean, I, I mean, she talked about how, you know, I had an interesting conversation because she talked about how um, the old age pension uh, isn't that important as a as a as a, uh, a program. And I said, so why do seniors, you know, if, if the government oh, either wants to claw it back or, or yeah. lower it or or do something to it, the first you know year screens from coast to coast. Uh, from seniors who say, what are you doing? And she said, well, it's, it's because we've given up. There's just three stools that they need. They need the old age pension, yes, if there's no Canada pension and if there's no uh, personal savings that they'd be able to save all these years. Mm-hmm. And, and then so they're left only with that pension, and that's not what we need. That, that's not enough. If you, you know, someone like me, who is, as I said, I'm retired in theory, uh, you know, I have a company pension. I have saved. I've made enough money over the years to save for my own retirement. Uh, and, you know, I will get, I do get the Canada pension, but, you know, it's, I don't need it. <laughs> I, yeah. I really don't. Um, and so I'm fine. But, you know, I'm, I'm apparently not, I am the exception. Uh, more and more people just don't have that kind of life. And as we look forward, I mean, I worked in one place for 40 years, right out of the university. Well, today, I mean, I, I teach now at university, and I have been for a long time, and I, I look at my students, and I, you know, I wonder what about them. Like, they don't get permanent jobs out of university, right? They think getting a six-month contract somewhere is like hitting the jackpot. Mm-hmm. And, and they move from contract to contract, um, and, and, you know, they have university educations. So figure out somebody who's a Uber, an Uber driver or, you know, uh, an Amazon warehouse person. Uh, I mean, a lot of employers now use employees as temporary help, uh, as just another, uh, I call them like a, a reusable two-four. Mm. You know, they, they use them up and you get another one. Right. It's no problem. Uh, and, you know, and I talked to that. You know, I talked to the president of the Canadian Labor Congress about that and how, how that is eroding Canadian society, that because when you have a, a an employee who you won't treat as an employee, uh, you treat them as temporary help. You give them eight hours of work, and you think you're you're done with them. There's no loyalty to them. Certainly, there's no pension plan. There's no benefits to them. Uh, they don't contribute to unemployment insurance. It's it, it you know it, it just it erodes our society as these companies get richer and richer. And there is a real problem. And I, I, I thought his you know, chat with me was really interesting about how we're letting corporations get away yeah. with abandoning their responsibility to the rest of us. Yeah, that's the thing that I keep thinking about as I finish the book was uh, about how many people talk about how we should think about uh, the people in our society, in our, in our country, who um, need the help, you know, th- that th- there are less fortunate people, and, and, and we overlook that sometimes, don't we? I mean, th- they're not the front page of the newspaper or the top of the newscast or, or um, uh, th- things that we think about a lot well, of we people. We want to forget think. about them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because, I mean, look, we, 
again, if we live in a bigger city, we see people on the streets who are homeless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we're in a good mood, we may flip a toonie to them. That isn't going to do it, right? That isn't the answer to this problem. And, we, and, and I think we've been accustomed now to beginning to think it's not our problem, that somehow these people just fell off the, the wagon somewhere yeah. and they fell into the street and someone will take care of them. And, you know, I, I, so one of the topics is homelessness. And, and I thought that was interesting, too, that you know, the, 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 the vision of the person on the street who is homeless is not the typical homeless person. Uh, I think there's this myth that that is what homelessness is, and that, and that these people are there, some of them, because they want to be there, that they've rejected going into the shelter. Or bad choices they've made, yeah. Yeah, and... And A, he told me, well, okay, think about that. But he says there's a very small group of people who are on the street by choice. Mm-hmm. But he said, think about what that means. If, if, if being on the street is your choice, imagine how bad the other choices are yeah. that they've already rejected. So something's wrong. But he said, that's, but that's a really, really small part of our homelessness problem. But the, ma- the people who are homeless are really small they're only temporarily homeless. They're homeless usually for just short periods of time. Either they can't meet the rent at the end of the month, mm-hmm. and so they are evicted and then, until they can scramble and catch up, uh, until they need a shelter for a little while to get them places. We have couch surfers who just find places to be accommodated uh, for, again, for short periods of time. Uh, but, you know, again, he says there are solutions to this, and we can look ar- around the world, and we see other countries that are doing much better than we are uh, with homelessness. And he said, problem, and, and, and part of the problem for, with the homelessness issue is that we don't solve homelessness. We solve everything else. That we look around and we say, okay, if the, the, the problem is a lot of homeless people are, let's say, addicted to a substance. Mm-hmm. And so we try to cure that. We don't give them a home, we just try to cure their substance addiction. Uh, or they don't have a job, and they, or, they, or that welfare runs out, so we send them to a food bank. Uh, but we don't actually give them a place to live. Uh, and he says, well, that's not solving homelessness at all. And he says, there are solutions. But we've kind of put money in, different, in ten different pots, and none of them actually directly address homelessness. Mm-hmm. So it, and, and it, it's funny, with a lot of the people I spoke to, I could hear their frustration. Um, because I think a lot of people think, who know a lot more than me, really, about all these problems, think they have the solution, that it's not hopeless. I and mean, that was maybe the good and the bad news in this, that they were doing a bad job in, in many areas. But I guess the good news is that the people who are working in these areas believe there are solutions, yeah. uh, which is good. You know, it's not hopeless. Like, you know, you can throw up your arms and say, oh, my God, it's homeless. The homeless people, it's a hopeless situation. Or, or, or poverty, how are we ever going to solve that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's hopeless. And you give up and you shrug and you walk away. You know, that's not, and that's not good enough, right? So it's, it's nice to hear, I guess, that there are solutions. And, the, and, and a lot of people are just so frustrated that our governments won't come to the table with exactly. the real solutions. Um, yeah. That they, they, you know, they may throw money at it for a little bit, but they don't really think out where the money is going. Um, it, it's, it, it was frustrating, actually, for me to listen to it. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, and, you know, I'm sure they were making their best case, 
but it sounds not easy, but at least it sounds like there is a plausible path that responsible governments could be taking, but they don't. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, uh, one government starts something, and then it's an election, and maybe the, you know, the government changes, and so they feel they can't stay on that path on principle. <laughs> yeah. And they have to just change direction, and so here we go again. It, it's, it, and they're frustrated by all this. And yeah. They should be, I guess. The, the, when you talk to Donald McPherson uh, here from SFU, and he talks about drug policy, um, that's that, that's exactly what I was thinking about as we were just talking because um, on that subject, for example, um, we've seen over the last 20, 25, 30 years sort of, you know, an evolution in, in our thinking about how to deal with, with the drug crisis and how views have changed on that. Um, you know, it gives us hope, but at the same time, yeah, we are um, frustrated by people who make the decisions and, and who act perhaps too slowly for, for where society is. Yeah, and, and you know, with, with that problem in particular, I mean, I mean, he says, and you know, when you think about it, it sounds like he's telling a reasonably mm-hmm. plausible story yeah. that we have had uh, this insistence on fighting a war on drugs that we have just we have made these substances illegal, and we are determined to stamp them out in the face of all evidence that we can't do it. That we just, you know, you can't just say something is illegal and shouldn't be done, and then, and then think you've solved the problem. So, you know, the the addiction problem is an addiction problem. It's a it's a medical problem, not a criminal problem. And you know, and we have a lot of people who are addicted to a lot of things, but as he put it, we don't tell them that if you if you can't control your addiction, you're going to die. We don't yeah, tell them that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you may be addicted to tobacco. But we don't tell them if you if you smoke tonight, you're going to die. But with fentanyl on the streets, that's exactly what's happening. We, we you know if we if we're reluctant to have safe injection sites, and we know they're going to take the drug tonight. We know it. They're addicted. There's nothing we can do to stop them. They'll do anything to get that uh, drug into them. And so we have a choice. We can say it's illegal. Go do it in the back alley. And if you die, well, what can we do? Or we can give them a safe place, and we can treat them if they have a problem. And, and you know, he made, he made a really interesting point that we have many, many, many drugs in Canada that are illegal to take without a prescription. And we control them just fine. We don't say, you're a criminal. Yeah. We, 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 we just let you go to a drugstore and get it. They can deliver it to your house. These are illegal drugs that are not street drugs. They can't, but they're not allowed to be street drugs. So we have a, a system in Canada to control drugs. We have a system, and yet with certain drugs, we refuse to do that. Uh, and people are dying. And, and again, this is one of those problems, I think, where a lot of people think it's not our problem. Yeah. These are not us, right? Sure. These are the yeah. other who are dying. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you hear about somebody dying on the streets from a drug overdose, and you think, well, there you go. He's an addict. She's an addict. What can you do? Uh, but again, he makes the point that that's not what's ha- well. It's happening a little bit, but I mean, these are no- these are normal people. These are us. These are the children of, of middle class parents sometimes mm-hmm. who maybe had a sports injury and were treated with opioids yeah. and became addicted to the opioids, 
and instead of then getting treatment, they were just, you know, their injury was healed, and they were on, and they were gone. And suddenly they had this addiction to an opioid, no way to get their fix. And so they turned to the street drugs, and then they're dead. And, and, how, and you know, it does make you cry. I mean, because this is not, I think, the, the popular image of the drug user in Canada who is dying from an overdose of illicit fentanyl. And as you point out, it's not really an overdose. It's, it's, it's a it's poison drug. Yeah. It, it's, it's poison. So it's not, you know, as he put it, you know, if you go into the bar, a bar, and you have a, a drink, and after halfway through the first glass, you, you keel over and die, you didn't overdose, yeah. you were poisoned. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what's happening, and yet, you know, it's just so easy for so many of us who really are, you know, don't live in that world at all, to think, not my problem, but it is our problem. Uh, you're a journalist, Mark, and I su- suspect that uh, you were interested in what Chris Waddell had to say about the state of journalism. Uh, he, he talks about the degrading of journalism what with uh, con- the convergence trend of, say, about 20 years ago. Um, I'm wondering, how do you see journalism in the next 10 years or 20 years? Do, do you see it, say, sort of uh, halting the dissent? Do, do you see, um, say, a revival, perhaps, in, in journalism or people paying, wanting to pay for journalism finally? Well, uh, like I got, I, I hope to God they do because I think you know. I, I know it sounds corny, but I believe that journalism is a pillar of democracy. I think without a free and vibrant media, no democracy can thrive. Uh, so I think it's terribly important that Canadians wake up to what's happening. Um, I teach journalism, and I, I sometimes joke that you know, some, they were going to be raided at the university because we're, we're scam artists. We're, we're teaching kids <laughs> a, a, a trade that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I, I hope that's not true, but it, it's so sad what's happening. I mean, I, 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 teach, I teach journalism, and I also teach a, a class at, at Ryerson uh, to students who aren't in journalism, uh, but I teach what they call news studies. Uh-huh. And... It's so it's for people who are interested in journalism, but aren't going to be journalists. So in effect, these are the consumers of journalism, and so many of them. These are young people, obviously, uh, and for them, a newspaper, you know, it, it's a prehistoric artifact. Uh, I mean, I, I start every year by saying, "How many of you read a newspaper today?" Zero. It's always zero. Mm. Uh, so a newspaper is dead as a news as a paper product. I don't think it has to be dead as a digital product. Um, but they are so used to their phones yeah. and, 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 and news being free, and they don't have a concept of where news comes from or how it's gathered or the difference between journalism and gossip. Like, How yeah. do they know what's true and what's not true? It's, they've never thought about it much, and 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 really every time I, I speak, it's like I'm, I'm an oracle because I I open their eyes, and this is what I think has to happen to more Canadians. Their eyes have to be open to what it is we're losing as we as we get smaller and smaller uh, newspapers. Uh, like in our country, we've had royal commissions. For like in 1968, I think yes, there was a royal commission on the media, and it said that we shouldn't allow 
major corporations to own, back then it was newspapers, yeah. because it said that uh, the dissemination of information was too important to leave to the whim of a business person, um, even if they were a good business person. Like, why should, you know, back then, uh, uh, even now, Thompson, you know, richest man in Canada, owns yeah. Reuters, uh, part of the Golden Mail, fine, he's a, you know, he's a pretty good newspaper owner. Uh, but what about Bell Media? What is, to, to Bell Media, CTV is just another part of their empire, uh, and it's, it must make money. And Bell Media doesn't just include CTV, it includes a lot of radio stations in Canada, yeah. talk radio, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And they just treat it as another widget factory, and that can't be allowed. Um, news is much more important than a widget factory, and, and, and it can't be just a profit center. I understand that businesses have a right to make money, and they should make money, but they shouldn't make every nickel possible out of a news operation. It's just too important. So students today, you know, they, we, I had, like last night I had a class on uh, fake news, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, they listened, they talked, we discussed it, and we, you know, everyone was trying to figure out, how do you to figure out what's fake, what, what is fake and what's real? Because I showed them, like, deep fakes, you know, Obama, you know, the, there's a uh, video of Barack Obama, for example. It isn't Barack Obama. <laughs> But it looks like him, and it sounds like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one of Tom Cruise that looks like him and sounds like him. So we've reached a stage where you literally cannot believe your eyes anymore, yeah. which says yeah. something, right? You can't believe what you see and hear anymore. So how do you figure out? Well, I said, you know, you're making too much. You're, make, you're trying too hard. How you figure out if it's true or not is just who told you. Mm. You know, was it, the, was it the Toronto Star? Was it the New York Times? Or was it thisnewsjustin.com? Which one do you want to believe? Yeah. It's not that hard. But thisnewsjustin.com is probably free, and you might have to pay a dollar a week. And literally, that's what you pay sometimes, a student rate, yeah. uh, for a digital version of the Globe and Mail, right. or the yeah. Toronto Star, or the Vancouver Sun. Yeah. It's it's that simple, but Canadians have to decide that they care enough to pay for news. Because, as I you know, say to my class, you know, journalists like to eat. Journalists like to live with a roof over their head. Journalists like to have families they can put food on the table for. And so they need support because the best journalists really do care. But I see more and more people who are in journalism taking jobs in either public relations, which pays better, has better hours, Mm -hmm. doesn't have the same deadline pressures. Why wouldn't they do it, right? Why wouldn't they do it? But what does that mean when we have more spokespeople than real journalists? I mean, the government would like nothing more, I suspect, than to put out news releases right into your hands, you the public without a journalist saying, is it true? Is it not true? What is the context for this? And, and that's what's missing. And, you know, I, I really hope the country wakes up before it's too late, because already we're losing news organizations every day, yeah. and news organizations are getting smaller and smaller and smaller so that they don't have the ability to really 
check out what governments are saying, what big corporations are saying. Big corporations might have a whole public relations department that is happy to spin every story that makes them look good. That's what they're paid to do. But who's going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute? You know, maybe it's not so good that you're opening up this factory here. You know, what are the costs going to be on the resources that you're going to be using? Will you be providing good, solid employment for people? Are you going to be providing pensions for people? Who's going to be asking those questions? Well, I mean, I, I, I really hope that the country is smart enough to protect what we have, a free press. And that's what your book does, Mark. It, it, it um, you know, we can be proud of the country, we can be optimistic, but we, we also can't be complacent in, in, in so many areas, whether it's charitable giving, for example. Um, uh, we just, we can't, or guns even. We, we just can't, um, we can't just, just be smug and, and say everything's fine. No, I mean, look, we live so close to the United States, uh, and we know them so well, and we, it's so easy to compare ourselves to them. And especially these days when I think a lot of Canadians look down there and think, my God, they've gone completely crazy. Yeah. <laughs> they've gone off the rails. And, and we look at ourselves and say, okay, well, we're not there. Well, good, we're not there. Um, that's, you know, it's, it's a bad comparison. Uh, I mean, the guns that you bring up is a, is a good example of that. We look down there and we see, you know, like Chicago has more murders in a weekend than we have in Canada maybe in a year. Yeah. And we think, well, at least we're not there. But that's not the right comparison. You know, look at it instead of Finland or Sweden, where they have so few murders. And why? Mm. Because they don't have guns. Yeah. And, 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 and I think another interesting part of the, the gun story uh, that is in the book that, was, you know, that she told me, and this is uh, Doctors Against Guns in Canada, um, was that we think of guns as murder weapons in the hands of maybe drug gangs. Yeah. And, and she said, so we, we have to see guns as a tool of suicide, that they're, and they're an excellent tool for suicide, that, which is a problem, because people turn to guns, and if they turn to a gun to kill themselves, they're very, very successful. Whereas if they didn't have a gun in the house, they wouldn't be able to do that, and they might be able to get help before they actually kill themselves. Uh, and, 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 and for her, it's not a crime story. It's a health story. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, and, and, you know, there's a story in the book about how the gun lobby in Canada, which, again, isn't well known in Canada. I think we all know about the National Rifle Association sure, yeah. in the United States, but we don't think we have such a thing here because they don't have that high profile, but we do have a gun lobby in Canada because, I mean, if you think about it, every survey ever done in Canada says that 80% of Canadians uh, want more gun control in this country, which, on the surface of it, would make you think that politicians would be falling over themselves mm -hmm. to control guns in this country. And yet it's so slow, the slog, to get more gun control in this country because there is an active lobby against it and so and governments have a hard time fighting that lobby and they don't fight fair um they are uh, a tough lobby and, and and again as she said they, they kind of complain that the doctors should stay in their lane and not this isn't a, a doctor issue right but you know she points out that people getting hurt and killed is a medical issue too and you know if it was a poison going into them 
uh, we would be doctors would be saying we got to get this poison off the street. Well, here it's a gun that's causing this poisonous bullets to go into them. We got to get them off the street, and then we'd be a safer country and a healthier country. And and you know, again, I think she's right. So let exactly. the readers figure it out themselves. Yeah, yeah. That's Dr. Ackman's piece of St. Mike's in Toronto. Um, Finally, Mark, um, the last two years of the pandemic, you know, the last few weeks of, you know, looking at the news in this country, you talked about media literacy a moment ago. Um, It's enough to let people um, feel despair. Uh, How how do you come away from the last two years of the pandemic? Has it changed your view of the country or or the people in it? Well, I mean, I think until the truck convoy... (laughs) uh, I was pretty hopeful about things. Yeah. I, mean, I, you know, yeah, I thought yeah. the, the anti-mask people and the anti-vaccine people were a small fringe, uh, which, you know, it's reasonable to have. You know, you're never going to have 100% of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the truck convoy opened up my eyes, certainly. Uh, these are not the Canadians um, that I know. <laughs> I really don't. I don't. When I think of Canadians, and I, I've traveled this country, it's not that I... I sit in Toronto all the time, and I've been to coast to coast to coast. I've been everywhere. And not just as a, a working journalist. I, I, I love being Canadian. I've taken my family to every single province and territory. Uh, so we've seen this country, and I love Canadians. I mean, uh, I, find us, us, I find us generous. I find us friendly. I find us warm. I don't know those people in the truck convoy. Um, they were not my kind of Canadian. And... and I found that really quite upsetting. I, I think we would dismiss them as a small fringe at our peril. Yeah. I think they were very, very dangerous. And so that upset me. I think that that kind of got me down. Uh, but generally, I love this country. I mean, yeah. as I say in the introduction, I've, I was born here. And I, I, I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life because I think I won the lottery on the day I was born. I was born in this country, and that gave me advantages uh, that I realize every single day. And I think Canadians generally have to open their eyes and know what they've got. I mean, when I, I mean part of what was so, so upsetting with the truckers' convoy was that you know, them screaming about freedom and how their life was restricted. I'm thinking, shake your heads, people. Yeah. Do you ever look anywhere else? Do you really not see what you have here? I, 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 it's really stunning to me that people don't know how good we have it. And, and to think that these people especially would think that they are somehow encumbered in living a free and happy life, like it's, I was dumbfounded by that. So, I mean, for me, this is a great, great country. Um, that I think I owe a lot to and that I hope I have contributed to. And I think, you know, that's uh, one of my favorite words is citizen. Mm. I think that means something. I don't just live in Canada. Uh, I'm a citizen of this country, which gives me privileges and it gives me responsibilities. And I hope I can, you know, I, I am grateful enough for the privileges that Canada has given me. And I hope that I have contributed as a citizen to this country as well. Well, I think you have, but certainly with this book. I mean, when you talk at the beginning of the book about um, being a grateful Canadian, uh, we see that through the pages of this book. And, and, and I think that that's a feeling that a lot of us as Canadians, I think, need to uh, keep front of mind all the time. 
hope so. Yeah. Mark, it's nice to talk again. Congratulations on this book and good luck with it. Thank you so much. The book is called Inspiring Canadians, 40 Brilliant Canadians and Their Visions for the Nation. It's published by Douglas and McIntyre. It's author Mark Bulgich joined me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planto.